After the fall of Detroit in August 1812, recruitment among Americans determined to save the Northwest skyrocketed. A certain sense of demanded urgency seemed aimed at retaking what the United States had lost. On September 17th, orders from the national government elevated General William Henry Harrison to command of the entire Northwestern Army, charged with the offensive aim to retake Detroit and a thrust into Upper Canada. In the words of Robert McAfee, quote, the services which he was required to perform were in the opinion of old, experienced, and able officers the most extensive and arduous that ever had been required from any military commander in America, unquote. Richard M. Johnson, U.S. representative and famed dragoon leader, would write to President James Madison saying that, quote, Harrison has the confidence of the forces without a parallel in our history, except in the case of General Washington, unquote. We note that it was already late September, and if you recall from last episode, armies at this time were rarely active in the winter months. Expressing the dire urgency facing the Northwest, McAfee again adds, quote, The season for action was drawing to a close. Not a moment was to be lost in pushing on the campaign, unquote. Welcome to the foot of the rapids. We continue here at our winter quarters with but a handful of hickory nuts to eat. Harrison's overall plan was to unite the various scattered wings of his army right here at the foot of the Maumee River Rapids. General James Winchester, currently at Fort Wayne, Indiana Territory, was to transport supplies downriver to Fort Defiance and push on to the rapids as a leading element with some punching power. Other elements, a central wing, mostly Ohio militia, would advance northward up the route Hull had used in the spring of 1812, and troops from Virginia and Pennsylvania would gather with the artillery at Worcester before pushing west across the state. Winchester's group leaving Fort Wayne was composed of elements of the 17th and 19th U.S. Infantry, as well as a large body of Kentucky militia. Winchester arrived within the vicinity of Fort Defiance on September 30th, the men staying in tents. A new post was ordered erected to spruce up the rotting Fort Defiance in early October. The work parties, thinly clad and already on reduced rations in poor weather, began griping mutinous whispers. Supplies were sorely needed, and all made worse with the knowledge that corn and livestock were to be found at the rapids, but the horses 
already too weak to move the stores back upriver. It was decided the army would remain until food and clothes could be brought up, and here they were destined to remain all the way until December 30th. The rains began on October 11th. The order of half rations held the day, and with the men still dressed in summer clothing, there would be little to fight the coming fevers. Morale plummeted, and by November, death was becoming a daily occurrence. Winchester ordered the camp moved in search of drier ground and better access to warming firewood. The exhausted men, hardly able to tolerate the back-breaking labor of building and moving in the mud, with only enough wagons available to move one regiment at a time. Then the camp was ordered moved again, and even again. Profound hunger and heartbreak cracked the discipline of the army. Men wandered away in search of forage, a handful of hickory nuts. Exhausted troops asleep on the sentinel's post were shot for the breach in garrison safety. By December, the men began constructing their winter quarters, huts, the great subject of our endeavors here last week. They also began fashioning rudimentary moccasins from the untanned fresh hides of emaciated cattle. We have here been exposed to numberless difficulties as well as deprived of the common necessaries of life. And what made these things operate more severely was all hopes of obtaining any conquest was entirely abandoned. Obstacles had emerged in the path to victory, which must have appeared insurmountable to every person endowed with common sense. The distance to Canada the unpreparedness of the army, the scarcity of provisions, and the badness of the weather show that Malden cannot be taken in the remaining part of our time. And would it not have been better if this army had been disbanded? Our sufferings at this place have been greater than if we were in severe battle. More than 100 lives have been lost owing to our bad accommodations. The sufferings of about 300 sick at a time who are exposed to the cold, cold ground and deprived of every nourishment are sufficient proofs of our wretched condition. The camp has become a loathsome place. The hope of being one day relieved from these unnecessary sufferings affords some relief. Elias Darnell, Kentucky Volunteers. Famed record keeper of this campaign, 
Elias Darnell mentions Malden, as in Fort Malden, the British Army headquarters in Upper Canada, and the reference, Malden cannot be taken in the remaining part of our time, referring to the short enlistment periods for volunteer militia, though Darnell's unit had had their time already extended from two months to six months. To understand how a proud American force could be so bereft of basic necessities, we must examine first the weather. Rain had created mud, and it was said so thick that horses could barely pull a wagon empty, let alone laden with supply. And second, the geography of Northern Ohio and the awful obstacle of what was called the Great Black Swamp. The river system at the time was not the forward-flowing avenues of water transportation we see today, but rather slow-moving, shallow areas of water. They would gain their swiftness after the war when the swamp was drained. A case in point is the good story of Captain Jordan and Lieutenant Cardwell trying to push 200 barrels of flour to Winchester's beleaguered group at Defiance. Loaded into some 20 enormous canoes, in about a week's travel, they made a mere 100 miles, but various crooks in the river only resulted in, say, 20 miles as the crow would fly. We again turn to McAfee, writing after the war. Quote, the river was so narrow, crooked, full of logs and trees overhanging the banks, that it was with great difficulty they could make any progress. And now, in one freezing night, they were completely icebound. Lieutenant Cardwell waded back through the ice and swamps to Fort Barbie with intelligence of their situation. Major Bodley returned with him to the flower and offered the men extra wages to cut through the ice and push forward. But having gained only one mile by two days' labor, the project was abandoned. A few days before Christmas, a temporary thaw took place, which enabled them with much difficulty and suffering to reach within a few miles of Fort Wayne, where they were again froze up. They now abandoned the voyage and stopped again to make sleds on which the men hauled the flour to the fort and left it there." Unquote. After all this and much more toil, this deposit still hadn't made it to defiance, but a good example of the arduous delays in feeding a mass of men tucked into the frontier forests. December 30th, after nearly three months preparation for this here expedition, we commence our march in great splendor. Our clothes and blankets looked as if they had never been acquainted with water, 
but intimately with dirt, smoke, and soot. In fact, we have become acquainted with one much despised in Kentucky, under whose government we are obliged to live, whose name is Poverty. The second day after we left, the snow melted and the ground thawed, which operated much against our march. We marched two miles, tried the strength of our noble steeds. The weather took a change the 2nd of January. It commenced snowing and continued two days and nights. After it ceased, it was from 20 to 24 inches deep. During this time, we remained stationary. On the 3rd, the army resumed its march, wading through deep snow. We had to stop early in the afternoon to prepare our encampment, to rake the snow away, make fires, and pitch our tents. Was no trifling task. And after this, we had to get bark or bushes to lie on. Many of the horse gave out, and sleds broke down. Consequently, the plunder had to be pulled or carried by men. I have seen six Kentuckians substituted instead of a horse, pulling their plunder, drudging along through the snow. Elias Darnell, Kentucky Volunteers. As winter deepened, General Harrison, pressed with an urgent campaign, could at last use the winter to his advantage. He had waded out the depressing autumn rains and the roller coaster temperatures, and now the cold was sufficient to freeze the mud hard. Rivers became free avenues for foot travel without being encumbered by thick forests, and the Great Lakes slowly becoming silent slush monsters would rob the British of their greatest advantage. The ability to move men and material by ship and arrive anywhere in force quickly. Hence, again, the Northwestern Army found motion. General Winchester sending word from his base camp that his detachment was taking action dispatched the news to Harrison by way of a trusted scout, 20-year-old Leslie Combs. His laborious and punishing journey through the swamp makes for a compelling winter tale, which we shall here relate. Though Combs' account of the war years was ghost-written by another and appears in the third person, a bit of a switch for this program, but we soldier on. What he suffered on this tramp may be imagined, but cannot well be described. He was on this occasion loaded with a heavy musket and accoutrements, in addition to a blanket and four days' provisions on his back. The snow commenced falling on the morning of the 31st of December, and continued without intermission two days and nights. 
so that on the third day of their journey, young Combs and his companion found it over two feet deep. They were in dense forest, without path or compass, and only guided by the unerring skill of his companion, who had been some fifteen years in early life a captive among the Indians in the region. Several nights they encamped in the black swamp, and could not find a place to lie down and rest, even on the snow, but were compelled to sit up all night with a small fire at their feet, made of such old brush as they could collect, and wrapping themselves in their blankets, shivered through the long hours till daylight enabled them again to resume their tiresome march. On the sixth day, their four days' provision was entirely exhausted, as they had early put themselves on short allowance. Young Combs was extremely ill nearly all night, so much that it was concluded that Ruddle must leave him in the morning to his fate, and for himself make the best of his way to the nearest settlement and endeavor to save Combs if he should survive until his return. Fortunately for our young volunteer, his natural strength of constitution, and, it may be added, his unflinching resolution never to stop while he could walk, overcame his disease, and he kept moving for three days and nights longer, without a mouthful of food for either himself or his companion, except slippery elm bark. On the ninth evening, after dark, they reached Fort MacArthur, then under command of General Tupper. But his sufferings had been so great that he was prostrated for days afterwards on a bed of sickness, as in addition to hunger and fatigue, his feet were badly frostbitten, and his arm joints stiffened with rheumatic pains, from which he has never since recovered. After a brief recovery, Combs would be furnished with a sleigh and a pony to hurry back to General Winchester, but he would be too late. Back up on the banks of the Maumee, on January 13th, Winchester's force was met in the snows by two cold Frenchmen with a plea for help, and their ultimate fate was then and there sealed. After enduring the chilling rains and blistering fevers of October and November, the forced moves and marches on half-rations through mud and ice, all in thinned, dirty clothing. This small army, perhaps a thousand men, made one last march through the snow, northbound to the River Raisin, where the entire force, far from home, was annihilated in one of the worst defeats of the entire war.
Major Dunlop at Pittsburgh pledging his honor that each soldier should be provided with all necessary clothing at the public expense when we arrived at Worcester. When we came to Worcester, he then said we should have them when we come to Mansfield, and now there is none here. Many of the men came ill provided for and now are almost naked. The colonel had told us that he would not ask us to leave Sandusky if we would march until the clothing come on the way. Of the day was extremely cold and the snow about 13 inches deep. We marched two miles and encamped. The five men out of each company that were in the greatest want of clothes left behind. January 1, 1813. Rain and sleet, which turned to snow, continued to snow until the 4th, then clearer and becomes excessive cold. The snow fell 20 inches deep. January 8th, clear and extremely cold. Now is the time that tries the patience and fortitude of our troops. Many of them, coatless and shirtless, are obliged to turn out and stand on parade from before the break of day until daylight. We are then dismissed until nine, at which time the morning parade is called and the guard turned out, which are kept 26 hours without tent or fire. And when dismissed, the best accommodations or place of shelter that our situation affords is a cold tent and a smoky fire. Nothing but hope, thinned hope. The friend and supporter of the sinking mind with the prospect of better times, with that courage and ambition which never fails to inspire the breasts of the sons of freedom, enables us to support ourselves under and surmount the difficulties with which our lot is strewed. Greenberry Keene, Pennsylvania Militia. Greenberry Keen, with words slightly reminiscent of old Thomas Paine from the Revolution. Quote, now is the time that tries the patience and fortitude of our troops. Unquote. And, quote, supporter of the sinking mind with a prospect of better times. Unquote. We can also gather here the frosty hardships of the soldiers moving from the east on this overall campaign of General Harrison. Snow 13 and 20 inches deep. Again, few and thin clothing options only on the unusual winter march. But we can literally trace that line of march just from the previous passage, from Pittsburgh to Worcester to Mansfield, and on to Sandusky. These troops, hard-pressed and seemingly miserable as they were, had not yet faced their greatest challenge, arguably, the great black swamp and the might of the British army with a deadly host of numerous American Indian tribes. Somewhere else on this long line of shivering souls, was the Militia and Volunteer Companies of Virginia. We rely on the words, remembrances, and stories of one of their privates, Alfred Lorraine, to paint the dead and wet landscapes for us as the march approaches the foot of the rapids. The following passage will close out our program today. Thanks always to the Daughters of the War of 1812. Next time, we conclude our stay in winter quarters 
as we venture out on the ice to encounter mirages, open ice flows, and terror as we attempt to burn the Queen Charlotte. Huzzah. Bear with me, but I begin to feel sick about my heart at the mere recollection of such scenes. We plunged and floundered on through brush and briar, deep creeks and rising waters, mingled with drift and ragged fragments of ice. When light broke upon us, it seemed to augment our wretchedness by calling into painful exercise yet an additional sense and greatly enlarging the scene of desolation. We had frequently to pass through what was called in the provincialism of the frontiers, swales, standing ponds, through which the troops and pack horses which had preceded us had made a trail of shattered ice. In common, they were not more than half-leg deep. While fording such places, our feet would get so benumbed that we seemed to be walking on bundles of rags. And it was really a luxury to come to a parentheses of mud and mire, for then we could feel a returning glow of vitality. Occasionally, Poor packhorse would fall down in his track, if tracks there were, to rise no more forever. It was heartrending to see them roll their flashing eyes indignantly on the passing soldiers, as though to rebuke the madness of the people in driving to such an extremity of suffering. Droves of hogs which had been abandoned to the wilds, grim, gaunt, and hungry as the grave, were squealing through the woods and rooting up the snow. And under the relentless scourge of war, the whole creation seemed to groan in pain. The first night and day we traveled through all those disadvantages, 30 miles, at a late hour, we approached an area which bore a strong resemblance to terra firma. And scraping away the snow, we spread our blankets under the naked canopy of heaven. For at the time of our departure from Sandusky, we had left our tents standing with all our camp equipage. How long we lay that night in a shivering condition before we fell asleep we could never ascertain. But I awoke in the morning from pleasant dreams and in a profuse perspiration, and I thought under a heavy press of blankets. But when I threw up my arm to take an observation, 
and to see how the land lay in avalanche of virgin snow, which had silently ministered to my comfort during the night, tumbled into my breast. It quickly roused me to a recollection of my proper latitude and true bearings, and I found by calculation that I was bounded north, south, east, and west by the great black swamp. The next point of importance which we reached was the Maumee, or the Miami of the lakes. Here the army was halted a while, as though to view the desolate prospect around. Here it was determined to take up our winter quarters. We formed a hollow square in a thick grove on the most commanding hill. We then had to fell trees and throw a breastwork around the whole army before it was permitted to retire to rest. As it regards regular meals, they were fast going out of fashion, and that night supper was postponed. After we were suffered to see to ourselves, each mess kindled a princely fire. For whatever else might be tied, we always had an enviable supply of wood. The winter was unusually severe, even on the frontiers. One unfortunate sentinel froze at his post in less than two hours. Numbers were swept off by the mumps, measles, whooping cough, and other distempers, which came upon them at this unpropitious time and place where there was little remedy and less medical skill, and where the soft hand of the warm-hearted mother and the sleepless solicitude of the affectionate sister could not reach them. They died daily. The mournful air of Roslyn Castle became the prevailing music of the day, while the sharp rifle cracks of the platoon, told how many were born to their long home. A deadly homesickness overwhelmed our troops, and we believe a repentance of war was kindled in every bosom from the highest to the lowest. <laughs>